Good morning. It's day 12,046 of the Conservative Leadership Contest. We are one third of the way into the process. And I'm Andrew Harrison with Start Your Week from the Bunker. With me to set out the next seven days, it's journalist, broadcaster and Chancellor of the University of Kent, Gavin Esler. Good morning, Gavin. How are you? Very good morning. Yes, I'm, I'm very well. Thank you. Glad to hear it. Well, let, let's start with this remarkable story over the weekend of the killing of Daria Dugina, the daughter of the Russian extreme right ideologue Alexander Dugin, often described as Putin's brain. This is like a Tom Clancy novel. The, the two had been attending a literary event in Moscow. Daria decided at the last minute to take her father's car, which exploded on the motorway, killing her a Moscow car bomb for the first time in a, in a long time. What, what do we know about this? Well, what we know is that the the bomb killed Miss Dugina and perhaps was attempt uh, to kill her father. Well, that's about all we do know because as usual and Mr. Dugan is perfect at this because he he's one of those who knows that a miasma of lies confuses people and it's never quite clear what happened. So the question I I think the Sherlock Holmes question would be who benefits from this? And there are all kinds of theories. There's one theory, which is that there's a some kind of anti-Putin revolutionary group in Moscow, which has done it, which is, I suppose, possible, but seems to me unlikely. There's another theory that Putin himself did it, which, or at least the FSB, the uh, Russian intelligence services. I would have thought that is unlikely because he has, in a way, staked his reputation on cracking down on Chechen terrorism and other terrorists and so on, which leads the of course, as to wonder whether there is a Ukrainian element, a Ukrainian cell of Ukrainian supporters who have staged a very, very daring targeted attack in Moscow itself. It's very difficult to know, and perhaps we will never know what the truth is, because that's the way things are in Russia. Russia has attempted to pin this on Ukraine, unsurprisingly. Uh, As you say, we can't know and possibly never will know. But what does it mean if Ukraine were able to stage an almost successful attempt on the life of a key Putin ally? Well, I think that that is the point. Ukraine denies it. Of course, they would, even if they were responsible for it. Either way, it obviously sends a shiver of fear up the spines of people in Moscow and those in the ruling class, one would assume that they can do this. And it also comes at a time when, as you you may have seen over the past few days, there have been a lot of extraordinary attacks on Crimea. The, the The Russian Black Sea Fleet in occupied Crimea has been attacked and it's not clear exactly how much damage there is, although it will be clear to Western intelligence, who can presumably see all these things. So the Ukrainians striking behind what are, what are Russian lines, if this is what has happened in Moscow too, would be an extraordinary twist, well, a new front, I suppose, in this war, and it would be quite alarming for the Kremlin. And that's why I think it, it seems to me unlikely that the Kremlin would do this to themselves. I mean, there, there was there were some reports on social media, so you can take it with a pinch of salt, which is that Dugan was too extreme for Putin, which I frankly doubt, but there we are. Miss Dugina was a strong supporter of Russia's war on Ukraine. And, you know, while while you would not want to uh, express support for the killing of a civilian, if Ukraine is involved, it is a massive step forward. Is it does it does it count as terrorism if this has happened? 
That's a very good question. If it's, uh, I mean, terrorism is usually defined as non-state actors doing certain things. So if this was a Russian group who were opposed to Putin who did it, then I suppose it would count as terrorism. If it actually were to be a Ukrainian state group, I don't think that would fit in. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an international lawyer, but I don't think that would fit in the normal definition of what terrorism is, because it has to be, as I understand it, a non-state actor. Attempting to get some sense out of this, re- reading around it, I did see a lot about the symbolism of it because a huge part of Putin's platform is that he says he's the guy who stopped the rash of car bombings and the violence across Moscow of the preceding regime. He's the one who restored order. So a car bombing like this is not just an attempt to remove an ally of, of Putin's whoever is responsible for that, if it's someone internal to the Russian state, whether it's Ukraine's or whatever. But it's also a statement that Putin does not have the control he says he has. Yeah, that that's absolutely true. However, I would have to say this is where it gets extremely murky because there are those who think that uh, that certain parts of the Russian intelligence services themselves were responsible for certain terrorist acts or what we, or what we loosely call terrorist acts hmm. going back to the previous regime itself. So, uh, as I say, the history of uh, the history of murkiness in Russia goes back at least to uh, to Lenin, I think, and it's it's going to be very difficult to know, even when we are told the truth, if it is indeed the truth. Yeah, I mean, there's a strong case that the 1999 apartment bombings in Moscow that led to the Chechen war effectively finally collapsed Yeltsin's regime and put Putin in power. There's a strong case that that was staged by Putin's own sponsors. And one, you, you don't want to end up sounding like Russian state TV with with a conspiracy around every corner. But there are reasons to believe that these things have happened before. Yeah, just because you don't want to sound like Russian state TV doesn't mean to say <laughs> there is a conspiracy around quite a lot of corners in Moscow. You know, presumably we can expect reprisals from Russia against Ukraine this week, even if Ukraine was not involved. This week is the 31st anniversary of Ukrainian independence, and President Zelensky says Russia may try to do something particularly nasty, something particularly cruel. Do we have to brace ourselves? Well, I mean, what more can Russia do that isn't particularly nasty and particularly cruel? I mean, in terms of in terms of some of the stuff, which I, I won't even talk about because it's mm. disgusting, which is av- available on social media about the humiliation, let's put it that, that way, of Ukrainian prisoners, about the way in which they have treated civilians, about the assassination of just individuals in the street. Um, it, it, yeah, I suppose they could, do, they could do something even worse, and I can't even begin to think of what, it, what that would be. Back home, we search in vain for something new in the endless Trust Sunak infinity bore. Even Tory voters are sick of it. Uh, A Times poll has found that 49% of Conservative supporters thought that Boris Johnson should stay on as Prime Minister. But it was a total more than Trust and Sunak put together. Gavin, is is this a measure of how interminable the contest has become, that people have literally forgotten how bad Boris Johnson was? Well, I think it's a it's a measure of the decline of Tory leadership. I mean, if you if you were to do one of those um, sort of decline of man or rise of human beings kind of cartoons, and you could start with David Cameron, who was a decent enough bloke, but a failed prime minister. The next step down would be Theresa May, who failed, of course, but was basically fundamentally a decent person. And then we ended up with uh, Boris Johnson, who is not a decent person, who lies a lot, as we as we know, and has behaved abysmally, and of course deserves to be thrown out. And yet, 
the conservatives seem to be keen on finding someone they think is even worse. I mean, the thing that amazes me, actually, I, I, I listened to, I listened to uh, Radio 4 uh, at lunchtime yesterday, and they had a very interesting report from Sussex, from the Conservative Party members who are voting for the leader, the leader. And they all, almost all of them said, what a terribly difficult job this new leader is, whether it's Truss or Sunak. I mean, it's really difficult because the country's in a terrible mess without anyone pointing out that they've been in power mm-hmm. for 12 years. So, I mean, uh, you know, if, if we have a what I regard as a ludicrous system where 120,000 roughly, maybe 160,000 if they're lucky to get out the vote, uh, people who are not like the rest of the United Kingdom, they're part of us, but they're a very, very odd lot, 97% white, mostly older white males, get to choose yet another failed conservative leader. So it's hardly surprising they're depressed. I mean, I'm fairly depressed about the prospects as well. I mean, I write for a number of foreign newspapers and publications, and this week I'm writing about something that Richard Ingram's of Private Eye said back in the 1970s, he said, contemplating a ridiculous leader of uh, our country, he said, as a citizen, I'm appalled, but as the editor of a satirical newspaper, I'm quite cheered up. And I'm afraid if you don't, it's going to be a great time for satire, whoever wins. And possibly podcast as well. Some 40% of Conservative voters now think worse of the party because of this, or in the course of this leadership campaign, fewer than 25% of them are convinced that either Truss or Sunak has a plan for the cost of living crisis. Has letting this contest drag on so long been a disaster for the Tory party? It's shown off all the warts, hasn't it? Well, I mean, what you've got is two people, Trust and Sunak, who are running against the record of the administrations of which they were a part. So they are fighting each other, but they're also fighting against their own record. And they are both, and we will see this when Liz Trust wins, they will be both determined to pretend that this is some kind of fresh start, that they never were around for the last couple of years. And if they were, they were opposed to all the decisions that they were collectively part of. So it's hardly surprising it rebounds badly on them because they are actually, what can one, how can one say? They are not exactly inspiring leaders and they are running away from their own record, not just the record of Johnson and his government. Pretty much nothing new has emerged policy-wise over the weekend. They seem to have wrung that particular tea towel dry. But one strange thing that floated up was a treasury idea that GPs could prescribe financial help with your energy bills if they decide that the cold is affecting patients' health. What do you make of this strange idea, Gavin? Well, I I assume that there's a group of 24-year-old Oxford graduates, possibly from the Bloomington Club, who get together and are special advisors to various departments in this government and have come up with the wacky idea of the week. I mean, I think this is the daftest idea since uh, since John Cleese and the Ministry of Silly Walks. Just, ima- just imagine the, the situation. You are sick. You are also cold at home. You're cold at home and your sickness you think are related. So you phone up for a GP's appointment. Now, I know somebody who last week phoned up for a GP's appointment with some minor breathing difficulties, and she was told maybe mid-September. So first of all, you're going to have to get the overworked GPs. I'm not blaming the GPs in this at all. You're going to have to get overworked GPs to see you because you cannot afford your gas bill. And somehow somebody in the Treasury, I mean, this is this is the, what can one say? This is the Garden Bridge Airport on the Sea building a tunnel of Northern Ireland politics distraction of, of this week. I just think it's a ludicrous idea. I can't imagine any GP will take this seriously. And then supposing you do get the appointment 
and I'm your GP and you come in and you've got some serious disease or some, some problem that I can do something about, I will do something about that. And you also say, by the way, my house is cold. I can't heat it because I can't afford it. I'm going to tick that box so you get to pass it on to someone else because that's the way it would work. It's just, I mean, to, to be quite honest, it's, it's laugh or cry, isn't it? Well, perhaps I'll get the gas man to help you with your arthritis. I don't know. It could go both ways. This reminded me of uh, in the thick of it where they're in a panic to announce a policy. And I think Ollie comes up with inflatable churches for the community. It's not It's not far off, is it? It's not. But it's Armando Iannucci, I feel sorry for. I mean, how do you satirise this lot? How do yeah, you do he's it? out of a job, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, as our absentee prime minister browses the duty-free at Athens Airport, uh, the big story at home is sewage flooding Britain's beaches. Environment agency data shows that sewage monitors at many beaches in England and Wales are faulty or not even installed. So people have been swimming in human waste without knowing it. Meanwhile, in an amazing coincidence, water bosses' bonuses are up 20%. Gavin, you would have thought this was dead centre for Conservative voters. It is literally a conservation issue. It's literally about Britain's beautiful beaches. Are the Conservatives making a mistake here in not uh, spotting, dealing with it, and, and possibly even you know even producing a fantasy solution along the list trust lines? Well, I, I I feel this personally. I swim a lot in the sea on the Kent coast, and that Kent coast is lovely. And the bit between roughly Margate and Folkestone has been very, very clean. And I am so pleased that that is the case. It's a, it's absolutely lovely. It's good for my mental health, the mental health of anybody who does it. It's good for our physical health. It's great. I love it. And I find this story, it, on the one hand, absolutely despicable, but for the reasons that you've said, there are people who are making vast profits out of us, out of what is essentially a public utility, which we've given into private hands, and they're not doing their job. And the, you know, the trillion, is it a trillion litres of water a year lost? I can't remember, the figure is so big because of broken pipes, unfixed pipes, and so on. The sewage is the worst part of this. And the only glimmer of of light I see is that people are naming and shaming their MPs for mm. this because what is the point of having an MP, particularly in a conservative constituency, most of Kent, uh, or as you say, I'm Chancellor of the University of Kent, most of Kent has conservative MPs, and I, I know quite a few of them personally, they're very, very decent people. What on earth are they doing? What are MPs doing up and down the country? And they're being shamed by... They're being shamed by their own voters on social media. This is my MP. This MP has has voted effectively to allow our beaches and our rivers to be polluted. And they have got to do something about it. I suspect they will do something about it, but it's too late. Yeah, there was a, an amendment in October 2021 that would have stopped firms from dumping raw sewage into rivers and Conservative MPs voted against it in large numbers. And they, you're absolutely right. They are being named and shamed in local papers and local, local social media. Meanwhile, sewage alert maps are becoming current, common currency. We're all now familiar with the maps of the coast with, you know, I'm not going to say hotspots, but, you know, certainly <laughs> black marks on, on various beaches. It, 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 it's, it's all rather symbolic, isn't it, of, you know, absolute decay? It is. It is. What, this is one of the things which, which strikes me. We are very much like the 1970s, where so many, th you know, Britain was the sick man of Europe and so on. And actually, you know, w w one of these, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the Minister of Brexit Opportunities, who was so strapped for ideas, he asked Sun readers if they got any ideas for a Brexit opportunity. Also asked, uh, asked if there were any of these ludicrous uh, European regulations we should get rid of. One of the things that uh, you can see if you have a look at a map of Europe is 
that European beaches are cleaner than British beaches. French beaches, for example, are much cleaner. And the only other beach beaches, according to the map I saw yesterday, which even remotely resemble the dirt on some of our beaches, are those in Poland. So we, you know. We have done this to ourselves. We have done this to ourselves by political politicians who are not paying attention or who are whipped to vote in a particular way and are too scared to actually stand up for their own constituents and what they know is right. Because many of these, as I say, many decent conservative MPs know this is absolutely wrong. It's a vote loser for them. And they have stupidly decided to go along with a government policy, which is wrong. A couple of shorter ones to look out for before we go. Uh, the government's just approved the funding of the Sizewell C nuclear plant in Suffolk. 20 to £30 billion of private finance will now go into building two new reactors. Gavin, should caretaker Prime Minister Boris Johnson really be making big decisions like this while he's tucking into his third spanner of the day? Well, he's, he's failed to make big decisions for several years. So the fact that he's doing so when he's a, an extinct volcano is, is kind of strange, I suppose. I mean, really, the, the problem is that there is no good short-term solution to our energy problems. And uh, building a nuclear, uh, an extra nuclear power plant is not a short-term solution either. Some of these decisions should have been, you wouldn't start from here. You'd have started 10 years ago or five years ago and would have thought through what we need as, as a nation long before the current problems that, that we're suffering. You know, Boris Johnson, I suspect, uh, is probably... Um, ticking off a whole lot of things that people are putting on his desk without actually reading them because that is the way he works. Uh, Liz Truss appears to be quite pro-nuclear or at least anti-wind farm, but she's also anti-China and their state-owned energy company CGN is part of the consortium that's doing the groundwork on uh, on Sizewell C. Is she in for a dilemma after her coronation? I don't understand what Liz Truss is for, to be honest. I hear, I've, I've listened to her talking some of the debates and it's all, you know, she's for low taxes and, and but the detail and rather, rather like, I mean, she's obviously a different character from Boris Johnson, but the lack of detail in any of these plans. And you you know something is not going to work when you read the headline saying Boris Johnson has plans for. And I suspect (laughs) we may find the same thing when Liz Liz Truss has plans to fill in the blank because it won't happen. Finally, on your manner, Gavin, the BBC's plans to merge its news channel and its global news service, BBC World News, are expected to get a real kicking this week in a report from BBC News staff. Uh, The Director General, Tim Davey, is trying to cut £285 million from the corporation's spending uh, because of the government's licence fee freeze. But staff say merging the news channels is going to cost, it will mean it, it will cost more to source the news materials from other sources than it would otherwise be generating itself. And it will also drive people to Sky or Talk TV or GB News. Is that job done then, if you're Nadine Dorries? Well, you know, Tim Davy and the BBC have got a lot of problems, which are not self-inflicted wounds. They're inflicted by the government. And the one thing that really strikes me is this is a government that talks about global Britain and all kinds of things and how, how, how Britain is world-leading. About the only area in which Britain is global and is world-leading is in our culture. Our rock musicians who've been stuffed by by uh, by Brexit, frankly, and the new rules for that, and our our TV programs, our writers, and so on. I mean, the biggest franchises in Hollywood, some of them are from British writers originally. So the BBC is part of that success story and is being screwed by a government which is being vindictive. In terms of the specifics of the news channel question, this is really let let me give you a, an example. You are the 
top editor in BBC News on the day the Lionesses win the Euros. But you have a merged news channel, which is one for domestic audiences, for everybody from Shetland and Yorkshire to Cornwall and Northern Ireland. And you're also the head of the, of a, the same channel, which is broadcasting to Australia and Pakistan and uh, the Gulf states and North America. Do you lead on the Euros story, which is the lionesses, which is what we do domestically, or do you lead on something horrible which has happened in Ukraine or a drought which is affecting millions of people in Pakistan or India, or do you, which, what do you do? Seriously, what do you do? And do you alternate them? And do audiences actually in America, where it's uh, you know the big story is uh, is what the what the Supreme Court has done about abortion, say, would they be really interested in a game that most Americans are not that bothered about? So that's the dilemma. Effectively, there's lots of other bits and pieces, but that's the dilemma. And this merging of the news channels has come up repeatedly before. And the question is, what do you want the BBC to, to do? Do you want them to provide? decent news for people in Glasgow and Leeds and, and Cornwall? Uh, or do you want them to have a world role uh, in which they are a kind of jewel in the crown of British culture? If you want both, you have to have both and you have to pay for both. If you want one of those, you want a narrower focus BBC, well, you can have that too. But then you'll be giving up, in my view anyway, one of the great jewels of British culture. I'm not sure that the culture secretary who thinks tennis is played on tennis pitches and you downstream your movies. I'm not sure she's quite, you know, cognizant of these facts. Yeah, it's like a decision made by someone who appears to watch neither of the channels. I mean, you, you, <laughs> if you if you compare them, like, they're, they're utterly different. It's like a it's it's like a gigantic local paper versus the International Herald Tribune. There's just no merger to be had, and yet we're going to get it whether we like it or not. Possibly, I think so. Uh, yeah, and and also you will find. I mean, politicians are very busy people. They appear in television more than they watch it, whatever they pretend. So, yeah. so I'm not sure. I'm not sure how this is going to work out. But uh, but I think the vindictiveness which is behind it is the thing that worries me because we are, you know, I would say this, wouldn't I? Because I worked for the BBC for many years. But I do think that the BBC remains one of those institutions which uh, you you look at the institutions in Britain and what are we proud of? And uh, we're not proud of our tabloid newspapers as a nation. We are very proud of the BBC. We're tend to be proud of the judges we tend to be proud of our doctors and the nhs and those are the those are the very areas which are in some difficulty for various reasons right now there you go another week of golden opportunity thanks for getting up early to take us through it Catherine esler thank you very much and listeners thanks for listening remember if you find start your week useful we would welcome your support via patreon it helps us to make more podcasts it helps us to employ talented young producers and you get the show early and without adverts too search patreon bunker podcast to find out how you can back us thanks for listening we'll see you tomorrow for the panel show good news your favorite history nerds are back yes we at we are history have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops well i have john you mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays if i can find them it's a bonus we are ready to tell you all about what we've learned from the revolting french to some revolting women via some brits abroad and a foul-mouthed irishman so download we are history our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast with me john o'farrell and me angela barnes wherever you get your podcasts
Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Andrew Harrison with Gavin Eslow. The producers were Yelena Sofronievich, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomaszewicz. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>